0: This interview is brought to you by Australian Combat and Exercise. We run professional development courses for exercise scientists, exercise physiologists, and fitness professionals. In this interview, Dr. Luke Delvecchio chats with James Longhurst about the high-intensity interval training protocol, Life Sprints. For more information about our programs and courses, please contact us by visiting our website, acexercise.com, That's ac Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Luke and James Longhurst.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast interview with James Longhurst. James, let's start with where you're at and what your master's research project intends to be. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, presently, when I mean, it's a potential master's research project, we've had a few false starts. So uh, started with an honest, honest project, which was then decided it would be bumped up to a master's project. But we've had a few false starts. And at this stage, we haven't got quite off the ground. But when we do, or if we get it off the ground, it'll be looking at the lactate response, um, or the progressive adaptation to lactate, looking at the uh, life sprints protocol in particular.
1: Life sprints. So, James, why life sprints? Why the interest in life sprints amongst um, the many other high-intensity interval training formats?
0: I think, uh, Lukey, we should probably regress a little bit and look at the parameters involved in interval training. That would be I a good
1: start. Uh,
0: mainly because it would be good for the participants in this course to have a meaningful understanding and be able to have a meaningful discussion about the topic. So, when we look at our parameters, we look at volume, recovery, duration, uh, frequency, training status, intensity on the whole. Volume, length of the sprint, or in the case of the life sprints protocol, the length of the high intensity interval. Um, so if we have an eight second uh, high intensity interval work period, uh, versus a, say a 60 second all out sprint, we're gonna get an entirely different adaptation. If we, if our, uh, if our recovery period, which is just a rest period between work ratio work, work intervals is 12 seconds, as in the life sprint protocol, we're gonna get an entirely different adaptation to another protocol that might have a 120 second rest. The duration, say so we have two studies that go for 20 minutes. Uh, the life protocol went for 20 minutes, but it had 60 repeats. Another study has six repeats. Then potentially we're gonna get another entirely different adaptation. Frequency, whether we do something three times a week or whether we do something five times a week, we're gonna get entirely different adaptations again. Training status, if we have someone who's sedentary versus somebody who is well trained, the adaptation will be entirely different one more time. And of course, intensity. So if we look at the life sprints protocol and we have a prescription of below all out perceived effort as in 85% max peak heart rate versus another type study, Where we had an all out sprint for 120% VO2 max, we're again going to get an entirely different adaptation. Interval training, by definition, applies work to rest intervals to overload energy transfer systems. And in overloading those energy transfer systems, you're going to get an accumulation of certain metabolites associated with fatigue. And those metabolites may well impede your ability to oxidize or burn fat. So the mechanism behind any desired outcome or any observed outcome will be dependent on how you apply all the parameters that we just talked about. So in answering your question, why is the life sprint protocol different to other HIIT protocols? It has repeatedly been proven to be effective, time efficient lower limb strategy at managing body adiposity and body composition and other metabolic markers in healthy sedentary young women, Trap et al, 2008, and overweight young men Butcher et al. 2012. In short, the TRAP protocol augments lipolysis. Most of the other, well, the majority of the other uh, high-intensity interval training programs or sprint interval training programs does do not.
1: So if I can summarise a little bit of what you've just said there, firstly, you're saying that the individual components of an interval training program matter and how you manipulate these individual components, and they matter in terms of, how the body will actually respond or adapt? Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that seems—is that right?
0: So, how so that, we employ those parameters we just talked about will definitely be how you get your desired or observed outcome, and it matters. You can't just—you can't unbre- put an umbrella approach over all interval training and expect to throw a few numbers together and say this type of interval training is going to lose fat. It just won't happen. And I think that's where that's where the UNSW Loschpinch protocol stands out.
1: Why should the average trainer be concerned about this, James? Like, it's pretty common knowledge that in particularly the fitness industry, interval training can be put together pretty haphazardly or slapped together, if you like. Yep. Um, why should the, uh, the, the average trainer be concerned about how they actually use high-intensity interval training and particularly how they actually differentiate the work and rest ratios? Now I think,
0: unfortunately, Google, Dr. Google will tell you that interval training is fantastic for fat loss and fantastic for uh, a lot of other a lot of other metabolic markers and yes it is for most metabolic markers and yes you will improve fitness with most participants you you do any interval training program win but will you lose fat no so most trainers will go out and tell their clients oh we're doing interval training you're going to lose fat is that a good thing or a bad thing um they're just telling you what you read on dr google but when the, when, the, when the client doesn't get the desired outcome, they're gonna have a little bit of explaining to do down the track. Mm. Mm. And I think, uh, I think the other dangers with the level training is, look, for general population, do we really want people to go all out? Do we, do we want people doing all out perceived efforts? Is there a danger in doing something like that? Potentially, yes. So uh, should general population be doing a prescription below all out perceived effort, in my view? On the whole, yes. And do trainers realise the dangers involved in putting people through a spinnable training programme? Perhaps.
1: So, because commonly, James, and, and so you're speaking a bit about risk management or risk stratification there that you will see, and it's quite typical to see a trainer telling a client to go all out. What could be the ramifications there? If that sort of language is used in a coaching session or a training session, they're telling the client, you're on the rower, go all out for this next 30 seconds.
0: The ramifications could be depend Well, if you haven't stratified properly, you could have uh, you could have heart issues. You could have all sorts mm. of issues. If you, know, it yep. could be musculoskeletal issues. It could be cardiorespiratory issues. You and how many trainers really stratify correctly is the next question yeah. that we should look at. Yeah. So um, there is
1: there is definitely a risk. So what you're saying isn't exaggerated. That no. Um, the reason why you're suggesting that uh, trainers be aware that training um, not to use maximal intensities is because, A, there's quite possibly a risk associated with working at those intensities. Would that that be right?
0: Yeah, I think the easiest way to differentiate it, or Luke, is sprint interval training was originally developed for athletes. It was not developed for general population. And I think if you're going to have even even the university studies that involve sprint interval training for general population, they took five. Say it was a 12-week study. They may take five weeks to get them into that, into that high intensity, into the sprint interval 120% VO2 match. So there's a period where they work them into it. They don't just say, "Go all out from the start." Um, mm-hmm. So sprint interval training was never developed for the general population. It was developed for athletes. Around the year 2000, there was this massive renaissance, and they, everybody thought, "Well, wow, we've achieved all these amazing things with with athletes. What could we do with the general population?" And that's really when the, the likes of Gal Trapp and, and the rest were born. Uh, you know, interval training for general population came
1: about. You mentioned another thing that you mentioned in your, your introduction when we, we regressed a little bit before we started tackling why interval training is important or why interval training and then particularly why the eight twelves might be different. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned is there's, you know, obviously there is actually very different adaptations your body makes to, to the way you prescribe your intervals in terms of the work Ratio or the time that they're actually performing well, an interval.
0: Elaborated more on that uh, that, that part at the beginning. Um, There's actually a very good example um, when I, I actually picked those numbers for a reason. So in 2014, Sydney University Keating et al. Um, uh, did a study in there titled uh, "Moderate Intensity Continuous Training is Superior to Interval Training um, on on Improving Body Adiposity." It got a huge play in the ESSA magazines um, titled Don't Throw the Baby Out with the Bathwater.
1: And in many ways, they were
0: having a big gig at UNSW. So the study itself involved the sprint interval training program. It did involve general population. involved 38 participants. 12 uh, did the interval training group. 12 did the uh, uh, control group, which was the moderate intensity continuous training group. And there was the placebo group, who did stretches and fitball and stuff like that. The interval training group it was basically, their volume was a 60 second sprint. Uh, Their rest period was a 120 second sprint. This is the final from week five to week 12. There was lesser during the beginning. Uh, Their frequency was exactly the same as their life sprints protocol, three days a week. Um, And the duration was exactly the same, 20 minutes. However, what they showed in university when they uh, said high intensity interval training does not work was the interval training group did not lose fat. The moderate-intensity continuous training group did lose fat. So they then blanketed the approach high-intensity interval training does not lose fat. Moderate-intensity continuous training is better. However, fundamentally, when you look at the volume and the rest periods and and the repeats, it's totally different, and you may be producing those metabolites that impede your ability to burn fat. So there's a very good example of, of, by throwing other numbers together, why things may not work.
1: And and it speaks to the mechanisms that might explain it. Is, is that what you're suggesting as well?
0: No, no. I think. Look, I think. Look, the mechanisms. I think. I think. Then what we should look at uh, before we go to the mechanisms is that in 2017, um, Sydney Uni again, Keating at all, uh, released a meta-analysis and systematic review suggesting. Um, Uh, Look, comparing interval training versus moderate intensity continuous training and its effect on body adiposity. They, after doing the systematic review and meta-analysis, they concluded that neither moderate intensity continuous training nor HIP slash HIIT had any clinical meaningful reduction on body adiposity. So if we know something is is meant to be clinically meaningful, we need a greater than 5% reduction in something. On the whole, I agree with their findings. I agree with their findings, that 97% of interval training studies, whether it be sit or hit, do not lose fat. I agree with them. Um, however, there's always a few outliers that stand alone, and Life Sprint's Protocol is one of those that stand alone. Sadly, in that, in that meta-analysis, they did include the Trap et al. 2008 study, uh, um, and they, but they did include it under sprint interval training programs, uh, which to me, was a little bit dubious because we know that the mean heart rate for the exercises in the girls who did the trap protocol was 166. So by far, it was not an all that perceived effort um, throughout that time. Um, they didn't include butcher because it didn't in, it didn't uh, compare to moderate intensity continuous training. However, if you look at the results of all the trap and butcher studies, when you look at the, um, the reduction in central abdominal fat, in Gale trap study was like nine and a half percent. Uh, trunk fat was around 6.7%. They're all clinically meaningful. Butcher had a visceral adipose tissue reduction of 17%. Um, and again, his trunk and, and abdominal fat were around the 84 and 6.6% off the top of my head. Um, so I think, uh, again, we can't umbrella interval training as one big thing. Those parameters that we have to set is going to be what provides us with getting our desired outcome. And the mechanisms, I guess, that you take behind from what you, the mechanisms behind all this, are. it's interesting, because what's been clearly reported in the literature um, is the catecholamine response to to the the Lysoplinch protocol. It's clearly reported, so basically this type of exercise starts producing large amounts of epinephrine. Epinephrine, for want of a better word, comes flooding down through your system, uh, attaches to receptors on subcutaneous fat cells. This is a simple explanation. And that activates an enzyme called hormone-sensitive lipase and allows you to use your your fat cell as a fuel source. That is the basis of one. But there's a few problems with that. If you believe in hemodynamics, blood flow redistribution during exercise, then how does the epinephrine get to the fat cell during exercise? It's impossible because the coldest part of the human body during exercise is fat. You don't need to pump your blood to the fat. So it must be happening it afterwards if, if you're breaking down the subcutaneous fat. However, if you want to look at it uh, from another point of view, we look at it from an energy system point of view, which is more my what I like, we see a progressive depletion of uh, phosphocreatine and glycogen in conjunction with an increase, I know this is a little bit complex, but in an increase in cy- cytosolic citrate, which inhibits glycolysis, leads to lower lactic acid accumulation and increased fatty acid oxidization. So if you look at someone do a life sprints protocol, around about the five minute mark, they start sweating and breathing heavily. So Butcher would suggest that this is the time that you deplete your short term energy systems. And your body is forced to switch to intramuscular fat to provide provide for the rest of the exercise and recovery periods during the next 15 minutes. So that we are definitely, in a, in, in a life-spencil profile, potentially burning all the intramuscular fat and then and the glycogen, and then replacing those fuel stores later is a possible mechanism. Other mechanisms that have been discussed, uh, because you're getting them fitter, and the mitochondria is getting bigger in everyday life, um, you're just gonna oxidize more fat no matter what you do. When you walk down to the shop and you go to the supermarket, when you go to the oval, you're gonna burn more fat. However, there seems to be a little bit of a problem with that too because the Mallory Intensive Continuous Training Group, they improved their fitness by 19% in the trap study um, and yet they didn't lose any weight. So I think the beauty, in my view, of what makes this so fantastic or what the, the trap protocol is so successful at is that it either produce very low la- levels of lactate or we have a progressive adaption to lactate, which is really quick. So what we don't know, we know what lactate does. So lactate lactate when you will come down and it will turn off that enzyme that you've opened on your receptor to open your fat source. It will turn off hormone-sensitive lipase. So we know once you start producing large amounts of lactate, you will not burn fat. However, what we don't know is we know the receptor exists on a fat cell. We just don't know it exists inside the muscle yet which is obviously one of my areas of interest. So if it exists in the muscle, then the the studies that do low levels of lactate, well, they will burn those intramuscular fat. However, if it doesn't, if if the people that produce large amounts of lactate won't burn the intramuscular fat. So mechanisms are to this day pretty, still unclear. However, if you look at the 60 second or 30 second uh, interval programs, they're in that glycolytic system, so you are going to be producing large amounts of lactate, and they're generally the ones that haven't shown any success in burning any burning any fat.
1: So when we look at that systematic review that Keating et al. published, mm-hmm. were the interval studies cited in that review uh, mostly contained regimes that were longer than 30 seconds in terms yeah. of their work to rest ratios?
0: It's interesting. Yeah. So they had 15 high intensity interval training studies and 16 sit sprint interval training studies. Yeah, they were definitely, some went for four minutes, three minutes, some were, uh, some were one minute, some were, they were all long. There wasn't any short studies involved in that whole systematic review, which sort of sums up what we're trying to say in many words, I think. Um, the sprint interval training program, I don't think any of the sprint interval training programs could possibly work for fat loss unless well, you're only because you are producing large amounts of metabolites at all-out perceived effort, whether you like it or not. Uh, I think for, for fat loss, we need to stay at the prescribed intensity but beneath uh, all-out perceived effort. Um, but, yeah, the systematic review definitely involved studies that were a lot longer um, in duration in the work periods and the rest periods.
1: Is there anyone else supporting this view or your theory at the moment? Where, where else has it been suggested that lactate might be
0: well, Trappin Butcher actually suggested in in 2000, around 2000, I think it was 2007, that the lactate angle deserves further research. Um, other than that, there's obviously people out there who talk about lactate. Um, we definitely, the lactate angle is definitely being identified with the receptors on the fat cells. However, nobody—it's very hard to get a biopsy approval in in Australia to take a biopsy in a muscle. So it's, at this stage, no one's identified whether that receptor exists in the um, in the muscle. The lactate angle definitely has a purpose, but until we can identify, Kieran Rooney, uh, Associate Professor Kieran Rooney was probably the first to come up with the the, the uh, research on the on the lactate um, on the lactate angle um, on the subcutaneous, but it's never been identified the receptor in the muscle cell yet. So some work to do.
1: What explains in in the trap and uh, the earlier studies trap uh, butcher they they did report on glycerol and, and that was one of the the mechanisms which they used to explain the fat loss that glycerol levels were elevated um, when they were measuring them so where was that glycerol coming from where was that coming
0: yeah not a very reliable reading glycerol unfortunately um, I can, yeah that. that it, palmitate is the reading that you need to do So I often, I brought that up originally And the glycerol readings were shut down quite quickly um, as very unreliable um, And the palmitate it's palmitate But palmitate readings is really what we need to look at in, in fat
1: So there might have been an error there on a, their, their Well, assumption.
0: no, it wasn't easy. it's easy It's just unreliable It's an unreliable reading, glycerol reading for fat loss Unreliable In, 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 in interval studies
1: so it's, it's seemingly important that the numbers matter and, and what seems to be your argument is that the actual length of time you're performing interval may well affect the adaptation you're trying to achieve. Why eight seconds? What is unique about the eight second on 12 second off work to rest ratio that is obviously synonymous with um, life sprints, which has got Dr. Gail Trapp's work and, and Butcher's model on it as well. Can you, can you speak think, about that? I think if you look at
0: it, that, uh, and you have to go to energy systems again, it's the magic of the numbers in a way, um, but it's that progressive depletion. I mean, you're depleting the phosphocreatine, you're depleting your glycogen. You're not producing high amounts because you're not out an all-out perceived effort. You're not producing high amounts of lactate. You're getting this thing that inhibits glycolysis, which is cytosolic citrate, and you're allowing yourself to burn that intramuscular fat. It's just clever. It's really, really clever, I think, Um and again, I, in my view, it's because of the metabolites that, that block. It's, the, it's because of the low level of metabolites not really involved in the TRAP study that allow you to burn that fat.
1: So does this suggest or indicate that that type of protocol should have its own title or it's, it should have a separate descriptor <laughs> than HIT or SIT? Yeah, I think is that, it unique? And do you think, it, is there an argument that it needs its own categorization?
0: I think it's interesting that... look. I I think we've all got, got very carried away with all the titles. Sprint interval training is very high intensity interval training, there's moderate intensity interval training, there's aerobic interval training, there's sprint interval training.
1: Really, it comes down
0: to the sprint interval training, which is above all, an all-out perceived effort, and then there's interval training, which is a prescription below um, all-out perceived effort. I don't think we should change that. I think it should be quite clear. It's interval training or sprint interval training. Um, I don't think they should have a separate classification. I think. People need to be aware that interval training is far more complicated than just throwing those few numbers together and hoping you're going to lose fat. It's it's complex. And the, if you look at all those studies that have been done, the only people who really had success beyond some Hong Kong universities um, and a Chinese university is UNSW.
1: Could there be a gender bias, James, given that obviously what, what we're relying on is results from traps? Mm for Example, who was a female cohort, butcher, okay. obviously, as you alluded to, was a male cohort. But in general, do you think gender there might be an interaction with gender and the so responsiveness? When he to- those
0: butchers and trap study, this was really interesting. When you compared butchers and trap studies, the, um, there was, in, in respect to the fat loss, there was no gender bias whatsoever. However, in respect to the increase in fat free mass, muscle, there was a gender bias. So in the in the butcher study with the males, they put on a 0.7 of a kilo of muscle in their tummy and, and 0.5 of a kilo on their legs. Um, in gales, in trap et al, she they put in the girls study they put on 0.4 of a kilo of muscle in their trunk in their in their, t- in their trunk and 0.1 in their legs. So the only gender bias really came in the increase in fat free mass. But as for the fat reductions, it was. Even though one was a 12-week study and one was a 15-week study, it worked out very, very similar. Very similar.
1: So would it be reasonable for trainers to assume then that the eight twelves would be equally effective for a male or female? And what's been your experience? Because I know you use this protocol a lot.
0: Yeah, correct. I think <laughs> uh, the, po- look, the problem with the TRAP protocol is, and for trainers, if we're looking at this for trainers, as you would well know, Luke, is that well, most of the university studies are done on Monarch bikes and they're done with university students. Um, and does that have any ecological validity in the real world? Does it apply to real world situations? Can you go out there into the real world and use a sport art bike in a gym and achieve the same things you can on a Monarch bike? And I think that's where a lot of people give up. They go to the gym and they say, oh, I've learned this great study. So I've learned about... The sprints protocol, and I've got this woman. I'm going to do it on this woman, and I know she's got to pedal 100 RPM uh, on the fast bit, and I know she's got to pedal 30 to 40 RPM on the slow bit. However, on the sport art bike, you'll find that the heart rates don't match up to the pedaling rate. So, I've done many experiments on these sport art bikes now, and I think the best way for somebody to try and work it out is to work backwards. So we know in the trap protocol and the butcher protocol that the heart rate started at around 160, 150 to 160 and they had a heart rate grip of 10 to 20 beats with the mean heart rate around 166. So what people have to do if they're going to try and get a RPM on a different bike in the real world is they're going to have to put a heart rate monitor on their climbs and they're going to have to work it backwards from 85% and see what that pedal RPM is. So I've found on some sport bikes for the girls, you may be going 130, 135 depending on age. You know, it's definitely not the same. You can't say one size protocol fits all when you start trying looking for ecological validity out there.
1: Yeah, so I I said, I I guess what you're saying there is what's recommended from um, not just the studies, but obviously the publication, the books that both Trap and Butcher have written are those recommendations then really seem to apply well to it a uh, cycling ergometer like a Monarch, but not necessarily a bike in the gym that a trainer would have access to.
0: Correct. Correct. That's what... But in saying that, I think you can make anything work if you if you know the heart rates that you prescribe for them. So there's
1: just a starting point, but what trainers really need to do is monitor the heart rate response, which might be more reliable.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. If they can monitor the heart rate response and work at 85% of their clients in peak heart rate, not age predicted maximum heart rate, which most trainers would go for, peak heart rate, then they can work backwards and work at a pedal rate that works. Regardless, they need to pedal slowly. In the the recovery period, it needs to be 20 to 30 RPM, 40 RPM max. Because if you start pedaling too fast, the body will always naturally migrate to about 60 RPM when you pedal slowly. You're going to start potentially producing other certain metabolites like lactate, which may interfere with what you're trying to do.
1: So what you're stating there is trainers have to be pretty specific about their cues or instructions and and, and monitor that carefully. Otherwise, you're saying the client might end up peddling too quickly in the recovery component, which is 12 seconds. Yes. And that might create the the adaptation that we're actually trying to avoid, which potentially could be increasing lactate.
0: Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a critical part. I think too often or not, we we arm trainers with these wonderful studies and people go out into the real world and say, this just doesn't work. But again we, we've got to compare apples and apples and we can't compare a mountain bike to a sports art bike or a walk bike we have to compare a similar thing so what have we got to compare with is a heart rate range and we need to and we need that for the for the, the high intensity interval work period and we need to keep that the for the recovery period we need to keep it active and slow
1: so why does speed matter I mean, I mean it has been mentioned in some in traps research She did allude to the, the cadence effect if you like? Can you speak to that a little bit? Why should the trainers understand speed why?
0: Speed of limb movement is far more important than that resistance. And, um, and that's why you've got to get that. The speed of limb movement produces the catecholamine response. We don't want too much resistance. Number one, your heart rate won't get to the right place. But number two, you're going to be potentially producing metabolites like lactate, which will interfere with our impede our ability to burn fat.
1: So, how much resistance? I mean, I, I think it's intuitive for trainers just to want to hit that resistance button. And it's intuitive for the client to want to feel resistance.
0: Yes. Now, and practically,
1: well. how do you control that? And, and what's been your experience and understanding of how much resistance to use? Particularly, so online? I start
0: very low with the resistance. I might start the first days on the, on the. If you're on a watt bike, it'll be on a, almost a naught to one, a one, uh, the lowest level of resistance you can get. Then. Um, once they continually meet that that once you've worked out that pedal range, whether it be 100 rpm or 130, depending on what bike you're on, then you slowly once they consistently meet that and can, can go above it quite consistently well consistently, you put the resistance up a little bit. You're constantly bringing them back to that to, to that pedal rate that you first that you first worked out. So in the trap protocol, the girls they pedaled 100 rpm. When they consistently were pedaling 110, 115, she added the resistance a little bit more resistance. Same with Butcher, the boys. They pedalled 120 RPM. When they consistently were pedalling 130 or 130 RPM quite easily around week four, week five, then they um, increased the resistance and they brought them back to 120.
1: So it's in fact a factor, progressive overload strategy. Really, what yeah, you're saying or alluding to is that the similarities that you would make with a resistance training program if you prescribe an eight to 12 set repetition scheme, that once the client's doing more than 12 repetitions consecutively, Correct. the resistance goes up and they go to the like.
0: Lower the range, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, something
1: of that effect is that right?
0: Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what we we're saying, really. Once you can, well, it's no point. We don't want them pedaling 140, 150 if they can do it. So then we slowly increase resistance. Exactly what you're saying. It is a progressive overload. Mm.
1: But it's not fine, much of
0: a progressive overload. It's a, it's a fine touch. It's a fine touch. You can't, and, then, well, you can't then go and give them resistance, triple their resistance, and then have them pedaling for the girls 85 for the next week. That won't work. It's a, it's a little bit of a tweak. You got, it's got to be right. It's got to get them back to 100 each time. If they were at 110 for one week or 115, then a little bit of resistance tweak, maybe half a kilo if you're on a Monarch, maybe up to two or two and a half on a Watt bike as resistance, you know. Um, and then they come back to that 100 or 102, 103. and
1: four But it sounds like one, one important non-negotiable is that the speed can't drop. So if the trainer is increasing the resistance too quickly and the speed starts to drop, then that will actually interfere with the, the whole absolutely. process that we're trying yeah, to achieve. Will so we get speed speed that? Will we get
0: the column on response? And will we start producing metabolites that interfere with our desired outcome, which is fat loss? Correct, yeah.
1: And, and what, what's been your your client experiences with a high cadence with a low resistance? Does it initially feel easy, but then the client realises maybe after five minutes that it's actually quite difficult oh, to hold? Keep yeah,
0: initially maybe. Like,
1: you know, the gut feeling might be, well, this is too easy. I need resistance to make it feel hard.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. So most people, you're right there in saying that the first minute or two minutes, they think, oh, this is easy. Get to, get to five to seven minutes. And generally the people who first start off have never done it. That's the end of them but um, they think it's easier to start. So um, it isn't easy if you even look in the studies that they didn't, they didn't start them, they didn't do the full 20 minutes until the end of week two. The first time was seven minutes, then 10 minutes, then 12 minutes, the girls and the guys. And I think that's the same for everybody in the general population. I think the other uniqueness of TRAP is you can do it with anybody. I do it with 65 year olds. You know, I, you know can anybody in the general population can do it. Um, it's just, I think that's the beauty of it. They're on a bike, it's, it's low impact. It's just a fantastic, if done right and correctly, it's a fantastic way to do things.
1: Yes, there's even been talk um, of the trap with pets. So, like dogs on a treadmill, you need to lose weight. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, so, I've, I have heard words that they're even exploring <laughs> the potential wow. for overweight pets to come in on the dog treadmills that you see with a leash.
0: Yeah. And-
1: and using known protocols, trying and yeah. get in an animal model. But anyway, we'll move on from animal models and move <laughs> on to the next question. So we've talked about speed clearance, but in, in terms of, you know, the very very common and traditional view of fat metabolism has been that fat can't be oxidized at high intensities. Mm. Mm. You know, the results of um, Trap and Butcher's study really, really put out a, a strong contrast to these known principles of, fat oxidation at intensities mm. I, mean, I think a lot of people might be confused by that is how is it possible that they you know, reported this fat loss when they were working at the intensities that are often known to be more prone for carbohydrate oxidation not fat oxidation on metabolism.
0: Mm. Yeah look it's definitely look I think um, it's a definitely it's an interesting question that Luke. I think um, there's a couple I think that perhaps you know we, again we head back to there's another one the CPT the carnitine palmitate transferase This is a theoretical, but we know that in an acidic environment, which commonly happens at 85% heart rates, that that turns off and stops you taking fat, well, fatty acids from the CoA molecule from the cytosol uh, and attaching it to a carnitine molecule, carnitine molecule in the mitochondria. You know, in an acidic environment, that um, the the CPT turns off. So, perhaps, potentially, do we have that acidic environment with the trap model? I know in certain case studies that even you've done, you know, we've found that lactate response, yeah, and, 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 and when you're looking at acidic environment, you're looking at lactate response. That, not that the lactate is the the acidity, but it's the hydrogen ions attached to it. Perhaps, perhaps we're still burning fat because we don't have that acidic environment and we're not having that lactate response, whereas generally with other exercises, if it's continual, I think you would be. I think at 85% heart rate, if we kept going at 85% heart rate, uh, at, at, if we kept a, a workload where we were continually at 100... Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think... Um, well, they're my two theories, that we're either, we're either in, in a non-acidic environment and we're not turning off CPT, um, and potentially we don't have the lactate blocking ability to oxidise that intramuscular fat.
1: So... in I guess the traditional view has always been that fat is a slow burner. So obviously at a higher heart rates or in higher intensities, uh, flux flux of these metabolites running through better oxidation, for example, just can't be supported at such high intensities. So it's potentially not related to efflux and flow through these well, energy systems. I, I, but I, that I, bear think,
0: I think there is a bit more into this. So like I can tell you that um, Professor Kiramuni has some triathletes uh, a while back, that he had them running at 95% of their VO2 maximum, all they were oxidizing was fat. Is that common for everybody? That here they were on a fat diet? Diet will play a big prescription in there, so there's a lot of factors that come into this. And um, so it, is it impossible? No.
1: So it's more potentially just based on the average response rather than outliers, or maybe it's just been assumed, but what you're suggesting and what you've observed is that. Uh, potential training adaptation is to be able to push that so-called fat threshold up so you're actually-
0: potentially if you just have fat as fuel source yes you can't metabolize it as quickly as, as carbohydrate and that's why we that's why we instinctively our systems go to that it's just a longer process to a shorter process but i think the body adapts to everything um the 812s you know i think i think it's that it's that genius that they deplete those short-term energy systems without without taking it further. Um, so there's that, that 8 on 12 recovery is, um, I think it's a genius of the numbers,
1: Ricky. Let's just shift gears a little bit and, and talk about EPOC because I, I know that you're not necessarily a believer in the EPOC theory that explains weight loss as so many people mm. uh, subscribe to. Why aren't you, why aren't you convinced that EPOC, Look, is I think even an explanation for, for weight loss with exercise in general or higher intensity exercise and then how, how it may or may not interact with the trap program or the life sprints.
0: I think um, look without a doubt even in the life sprints protocol, I think the majority of the fat has to be coming back to replace those intramuscular fuel Uh whether it be glycogen, intramuscular fat. I think it has to be happening after exercise. I think it's very—it's a very good chance that the epinephrine's binding to those receptors once you get off that bike, in, in your subcutaneous receptors—it's binding there and it's allowing it to be used as a fuel source, and it's going back to replace all that intramuscular fat you've used in your quads and your hamstrings, and all the glycogen you've already depleted as well. Um, it's going to repl- going back to a supply the phosphocreatine, um, um, so. I'm not a disbeliever in EPOC. I think, and I think that's a really, really interesting point that you've just raised because one big other disclaimer with the TRAP protocol, and a lot of people will do this, is you have to be really careful once you finish that exercise not to get off and have an apple or a bit of protein like most people will actually make a because you'll turn your hormonal profile from epinephrine, which is fat burning, to an insulin storage, uh, which is a storage of fat. Um, so we like to try and give them a two-hour window after uh, after doing a track protocol or, um, of no eating. So in in, anywhere, in many ways, this is epoch anyway. It's happening afterwards.
1: Mm. Mm. So you think it's actually important, and I, I think this is a, a good take-home for trainers as well, that the response might be augmented if they actually do apply a nutritional strategy such as delaying... Um, Take a food for a period of
0: time. I think, look, I think, look, when they first did the study, they said, Trap and Butcher said, please don't eat two hours before. Uh, And they also highlighted later that it's better not to eat after because you'll turn that you'll change your hormone response. And yes, I think the trainers should imply that nutritional strategy. But if you go and do all that work on a bike, you do that 20 minutes and then you get off and you get all this epinephrine flooding through your system, and you go, you've got your client who has an apple or a protein drink to recover their muscles, and they're going to stop that epinephrine being able to burn fat. The floating down the body. You're going to change it to an insulin floating everywhere, and we don't want that. So I think a two-hour window is ideal, two hours both sides, two hours before you do the exercise, two hours after.
1: And your experience with clients to date using that, uh, how they responded and how did they adhere?
0: Much better. I think once you explain anything to anybody um, and, and, the, and the science behind it, and it's logical, science, um, that they adhere to it quite quickly. A lot of people originally, you, you, they just eat, there's naturally they feel like an apple or a banana or something after they do training, uh, whether or a protein, and you just need to change it. If their goal is fat loss, they should not be eating for two hours afterwards.
1: There's also been some research that might suggest that green tea uh, – could also be beneficial in combination with the traps. Um, where are we at with that? Has there been any more recent research? And have you played with this as well, looked at utilising green tea in conjunction with performing the life sprints?
0: I'm a big believer in green tea. I mean, I drink litres of it a day. Um, and yeah, it was very, you know, the trap at uh, UNSW, did produce a lot on green tea and, and also on the Mediterranean diet um, with green tea. And they showed significant results, exact, almost the same results as um, they did in their original study, a little bit better. Um, the mechanism. So behind, why? Yeah, that, uh, the mechanism behind it. Um, I'll have to leave with you there. I'd I need to refresh on that a bit.
1: Yeah, so if I recall, it had something to do with a particular enzyme in green tea that uh, inhibits or delays the degradation of adrenaline. So the theory being that by taking green tea with uh, doing the traps, obviously you're getting that natural elevation you know, it's adrenaline,
0: the the trap, And then so it prolongs,
1: prolongs the life of adrenaline okay. um, through yeah one of the enzymes that green tea well, anything contains. Anything that prolongs
0: the epinephrine response is good. So uh, good. As long as we don't eat with that.
1: Yep. And there's yes. that disclaimer, yeah, there as long you go. as
0: we don't eat with that. So, um, so potentially,
1: the, the the trap program is don't eat for two hours and, and also consider using some green tea supplementation or just natural green tea. I think it was seven bags or 12 bags, is equivalent. Um and yeah, that that might used, be some, they use
0: capsules too didn't they or something that was yeah, they did in the
1: studies, but I think it, the cap the met the capsules or the active ingredient in green tea probably equated to i think it was seven bags or twelve, some ridiculous amount, so it'd obviously be you know practical more practical to use the supplementation rather than the tea bags itself. So, I mean, is there anything else about the 812s? Now, you did touch on lean muscle mass. I mean, how effective is these, this type of regime when compared to resistance training? If their goal, if we're switching the goal a little bit here, James, we're now saying we've got a client who, for whatever reason, will just create a scenario um, who can't do resistance training but needs to increase lean mass, lean muscle mass. Could they potentially use TRAP to achieve this outcome or, or reach this goal?
0: So we've got to look at how TRAP is done. So, I mean, they increase lean muscle mass in the trunk and the legs, yes, uh, for girls and for guys. Um, If your client's scholars, to increase lean muscle mass, well, you have done it doing just a TRAP, but there's other areas of the body that it'll be a disproportionate increase in lean muscle mass. It'll be in the legs and trunk, not upper body, no arms, no, you know. Uh, So I think we have to be a little bit careful if we try and prescribe Trap or butcher as a as a as a way to as a way to increase total body lean muscle mass. Um, mm. And I think that's the other thing, the fat loss, you know, even the fat loss, it was disproportionate. It, most of it came off the, the trunk and the legs and the abdominal. Um, I think some interesting points though that come out of um, the scenarios, especially when we when we talk about increasing lean muscle masses, you'll often hear a lot of people. A lot of people argue that, how do you know the high-intensity interval training that once they've done seven weeks of it, that their appetite hasn't been suppressed, which a lot of studies have shown the suppression of appetite the more interval training you do?
1: And how do you know that this fat loss hasn't hasn't come out,
0: hasn't been because they have reduced their calorie calorie intake? Well, both um, uh, trap and butcher uh, did three-day pre and post. Uh, um, food diaries for their clients, for for the participants in the study, and the trap one, and the trap one, they actually increased their calorie intake by 800 at the end of the at the end of the study. Um, macronutrients were pretty similar. Butchers were almost identical. I think that the, the argument then that comes to that, and, and the, as all dieticians will tell you, that you can't put on muscle unless you're in the in energy surplus, and in both trap and butcher, they put on. That free mass they put on muscle so they have to have been in an energy surplus so that sort of shoots down a lot of dietitians arguments when they say to you how do you know that it, how do you know that it wasn't because it reduced appetite all these factors came i think that's important for for trainers to explain to their clients
1: what what would be the take-home then for the trainer from that you know, I think,
0: no i think i think the take-home for the trainer would be they can you can't outrun a bad diet, as you know, but um, it, it, as long as their diet is relatively good, I, I think um, they can keep eating what they want.
1: So, essentially diet. keep the same eating plan that they're currently yeah, following? It's was, it
0: was one, it one of the only two studies in Australia for exercise and fat loss that was done without dietary intervention. Mm. A lot of the other ones that have achieved fat loss have had dietary intervention, and this had no dietary intervention. And as you know, the, diet, the diets are pretty poor. I can tell you the girls' average calorie intake, um, it was uh, 7,000, pre trap was 7,200 kilojoules. So when we worked out 4.19, roughly 1,700 calories on average for a girl. Um, mm-hmm. and, and by the end, they were having 7,900 kilojoules. So almost 1,900 calories for a girl, which is, you know, it's not a small amount for a girl. So it's a lot of calories there, mm. and they still managed to lose the top two girls eight and nine kilos. The average weight, the average fat loss, two and a half kilos. Take out the two girls who had BMIs of less than twenty, and it was a three point nine kilo on average fat loss with with those calories coming in. Nice and thing. do we know
1: do we know if that energy intake was set at maintenance? So were they you for example they those they were just or they were just oh, eating told- what they, what,
0: yeah, controlled continue doing what they did throughout the time. Yeah, And the mm-hmm. same with incidental activity. They were told to continue the same amount of incidental activity they have been doing before the study, not change
1: anything. So it, it's it's you think it's unlikely that they just became spontaneously more active and started to walk more, fidget more, stand more, as a result of their never participation impossible. in the study? Because that, that's, cer- that, that's certainly been proposed, hasn't it, yeah. as a, a potential explanation for the fat loss? Yeah, never impossible.
0: Never impossible. Um, never impossible um you could definitely but you can only go with what they say in the studies that incidental activity levels were you know were, were maintained throughout the study so we can only go with what we're told of. but yes if, not, you, not impossible. if you were design,
1: if you were design the perfect life sprint study mm-hmm. how would you do so how would you create the perfect to to really try and tease out all the potential limitations that have been previously discussed Make it a very robust investigation.
0: Yeah, I think you need. To what re- would
1: you do differently?
0: I afterwards? think you need to re- record habitual activity levels, and you need to record the food diary the whole way through. Like, if you really wanted to shoot down every every argument that was going to come at you, uh, which is a lot of work for people to include a twelve week food diary, but um, you're asking a lot of people. Um, but I think that would be that would be definitely good because you could definitely track what was going on throughout all that period. Um, what else would I do? Uh, I don't think I'd do much else other than I track those two things. Um, and I'd also oh, of course, I'd also track the response of metabolites to make it a robust study.
1: What about different age groups? Do you think there might be an interaction with age? Do you think also work needs to be done in 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 younger and older? So we know roughly the middle of the curve, i e sort of, Middle age, younger. I think that's a
0: big gap in the in, in the literature that in the, in the literature that most studies are done on uni students, and we don't know if it has the same hormonal response for middle aged people, middle aged women, older people. Um,
1: we have no idea,
0: and yes, it's a massive gap, and it needs to be filled, hundred percent,
1: hundred percent. So where to next? I mean,
0: you what know, what needs to be I, I think I, I, where to next? I found kind of, look. I think where to next? Like, it'd be interesting to look if you can work out the mechanisms behind, and you could prove, and you could prove why emotions and ninety-seven percent of interval training, sprint interval training, or in ninety-eight, probably ninety-nine percent don't don't augment lipolysis. And I think your next bet would be how 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 can you combine a life sprint protocol with a resistance training program and for the for the best results? Because people want to do a little bit more than three times a week of the life bridge protocol in, in a client and it's for a fitness trainer. So how do we then, can we get as good results by by doing resistance training on, on the other days or can we get as good results by doing resistance training directly after a life bridge protocol or is it better to do a resistance training protocol prior to a life bridge protocol? Um, I know there's been some fantastic uh, Studies recently been released uh, on some bodybuilders uh, doing 10 exercises, 3 sets, and their epinephrine response throughout that, uh, which has been massive. There's a massive epinephrine response. So um, is it a good thing to do a resistance training? But the argument has made some arguments that have now come out saying you should do a resistance training program first because number one, you increase your, your, your force contraction of your muscle, you decrease it if you do a cardio program or an interval training program first.
1: But also you've
0: depleted your glycogen levels inside your muscles, so you're gonna be more ready to burn that intramuscular fat. Um, however, my view still is if you're gonna, your, your aim is to lose body fat, you do the fat protocol first, and you could, I still believe you can do a resistance training session after, but you're, not, you're using legs when we do track. We do, it's a lower limb strategy. Do an upper body resistance training program next. You're still gonna have massive amounts of epinephrine flowing around. Is it gonna cause any, any issues with, it, with your fat impeding? Probably not. Um, but I think it's definitely the next uh, frontier for trying for trainers and, and real life situations about what we can do. Because people don't just wanna spend 15 weeks Doing an hour a week on the bike, in general, that's a, you know twenty. No, minutes. that's a, yeah. That's, that's important. Right point. Point. Yeah. So where do we go from from the track protocol? Is we need to work out how we can add resistance training into it without any interference.
1: Is there is there any effect of you know being glycogen depleted? So if you were to do a weight session or you're coming in fast in the morning and you know that can interact with your glycogen levels would that then potentially affect your ability to repetitively hit those speed targets and then could that then have a flow of effect to the adaptations you're chasing in terms of reaching those critical heart rate thresholds that may sort of that map I guess to that adrenaline release which is what we're really tracing
0: yeah look I don't think you want to be glycogen depleted when you came in I think um if, if you're going to do that resistance training program first what you're saying and you want to be glycogen depleted i you wouldn't, hit those, you wouldn't hit the numbers you're looking for. I'm, I'm with you on that, um, um, But I think you come in and, and look, and it makes a little bit of sense, you know, a resistance training program, it is in short-term energy systems. Um, you would deplete your glycogen levels, definitely, during a resistance training program. Um, and, and then you could definitely go on with a massive epinephrine response going on and do a trap protocol later. I, 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 I'm up in there whether it can go better or worse. Um, but it was very interesting to see that the, the epinephrine response from these bodybuilders. So that sort of buoyed me with okay, so I, look, if you did an upper body one, whether it went first and then trapped second with a lower limb or trapped first with a lower limb and upper body second, I don't think there'd be much difference. However, if you went and did train legs, resistance training, and then tried to do a trap, I don't think it would work. I think that would be silly. I think because you're going to, yeah, I'm certain a huge amount of lactate, huge amount of tablets. Fatigue's going to set in. It's going to oh, almost chilly. But I don't see any problem with going upper body to lower body.
1: And then lastly, James, the long-term implications. I mean, how sustainable is this? Can someone start on trap and expect to continuously lose fat on an ongoing basis across a six-month, 12-month? I've
0: had, I've had some people, just because they love it. <laughs> they love it. They find it easier to do it at 6 o'clock in the morning. I've had some people in the corporate world have been doing trap for two and a half years probably, <laughs> are they continually losing fat? And they will do it religiously three times a week. Are they maintaining their fitness and getting a little bit of fitness? Yes, absolutely. Um, but as for will you continue to lose fat? No. Do you blunt your epinephrine response? Perhaps. I don't know. Like that's another, That would be another interesting research topic. Does your epinephrine response get blunted the longer and longer you do something like that?
1: So is it the case case that you might have to change modalities every six weeks or 12 weeks so to maybe continue to try and keep the stimulus new
0: and novel? Absolutely. I think you should unload. I think you should definitely unload. I think you should do something else. I think if you wanted to make it, you do your trap protocol first time, 15 weeks, see how that turned out for you, if it worked out well, because you might be one of those genetic non-responders, of course. Um, And if it worked out well for you, then you'd unload and you might do a... You might do another type of interval training program to show success, whether it be a a, a four-minute, three-minute running program on a treadmill, something different, Uh, and then you'd go back to track. Or you could just walk or do whatever you want and maintain that fitness during that period.
1: Yeah, nice. Nice practical recommendations. James Longhurst, thank you very much.